Hey everybody, welcome back to the Deep Astronomy Show. I'm Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space. And today I want to ask you a question. What caused the universe? According to the best theories that we have right now in science about the large-scale structure of the universe, the universe is expanding and accelerating. And if we go back in time, we go back in time to a smaller universe where the galaxies are packed closer together. And if we go back even further, the universe gets even smaller and smaller until we can run the universal movie backwards in time until all that's left is a point in space. This point contains everything that is, all the atoms that will become the universe, all the planets, the stars, the galaxies. And this point in space has zero volume. It takes up no space whatsoever, and yet it has infinite density. It's something that scientists call a singularity, and it's one of the things that comes out of Einstein's general theory of relativity. And in the course of normal science, we know that most things that we see most causes have effects. We can trace them. That's what science does. It looks at what effects are brought about by which causes. But what about the Big Bang? Here's a point that just suddenly seemed to erupt. A moment of creation that science can't explain. So what caused it? Is there such a thing as a first cause? Now, philosophers have been thinking about this for hundreds of years. Science doesn't have a whole lot to say because, well, our laws of physics stop right at the Big Bang, the moment of the Big Bang. So was there a cause that started everything? And what was it like? Today, Charlotte and I will be talking about what's called the first cause. And I'll give a brief overview of what the science has to say about it, and then she'll talk a little bit about the philosophy. And together, we'll give you our opinions on what all of this means. So we hope you enjoy the episode. All right, well, let's get started. All right, so today what we thought we'd talk about is the first cause of the universe. This is something that, in an indirect way, brought Charlotte and I together. By the way, hi, Charlotte. Are hi, you there? hi. <laughs> Good. Um, He's persuading me to do another one of these. That's right. I've got her trapped, and hopefully yeah. our sound quality is a little bit better today. So anyway, one of our first interactions, one of our first conversations we ever had was this idea of first cause. And anybody who knows or thinks about the universe as a whole, the large-scale structure of the universe, thinks about this as well. Because as many of us know, many of you who follow what Deep Astronomy posts, know about the Big Bang and the origin of the universe and the fact that the universe is expanding and accelerating. And all of these things lead to some very interesting questions. So we're going to talk about some of this today. And I'm going to start by sort of giving the scientific overview of what we know about the universe so far. And then we're going to get a little bit philosophical and think about what other people in history have thought about this problem. So we've known for quite some time now, ever since Einstein's theory of relativity, from which so much about our, our universe has come from, the universal motion has been predicted by this theory. One of two things are possible in relativity. Either the universe is expanding or the universe is contracting. That's what's predicted by relativity. Sure, it could be static. It could be not doing anything. But that turns out to be a very unstable situation. And it's hard to create that uh, kind of equilibrium. It's an unstable equilibrium. So Einstein said the universe is either expanding or it's contracting. That's what relativity predicted. And it would contract if 
like the, the force of gravity of all the mass in the universe was causing it to pull together and it might contract that way. And expanding would be another stable equilibrium that was predicted by general relativity. Although at the time Einstein put in a cosmological constant into explaining the expansion, which he turned out he later didn't need once the Big Bang was figured out. But anyway, where this all comes from, Einstein's general theory of relativity. Well, along comes Edwin Hubble in the early 20th century, and he's looking up at his telescopes, taking a lot of photographs of distant galaxies and taking their spectra, and he notices that they're all redshifted away from us. All of the galaxies that he's looking at are redshifted away from us, and finds that these galaxies are, which means when something is redshifted, that it is moving away because of the Doppler effect. So these galaxies are all zooming away from us, Edwin Hubble found, and it just changed everything. Everybody got super excited about this and couldn't believe what they were seeing. Einstein became so excited himself, he actually visited Hubble at the, at, uh, the, the Palomar Observatory where he was doing these observations, and Einstein spent a lot of time there talking with Hubble. So this was all really exciting stuff. The universe, it turns out, is expanding. Well, let's fast forward even more uh, where a group of people are looking at something called Type 1a supernovae. And these Type 1a supernovae are what's called standard candles. These are something that we know their intrinsic brightness of. Based on the light curve of the supernova, supernova blows up and then it gets dim again. And based on that dimming, the characteristic light curve, we can tell how bright the thing actually really is if we were right there next to it. And that's important because if you know how bright something intrinsically is, and if you were right next to you, then seeing how bright it is through your telescope, using the fact that the brightness of light falls away is the inverse square law, <laughs> <laughs> she just banged the lamp there, lamp there. Uh, then we can tell how far away something is by looking at how dim it is and comparing it with how bright it would be if it were right next to us. That difference in dimming, applying some relatively simple math, you can get the distance. And that's called a standard candle, and they're very important in cosmology for knowing how far away things are. So this group of scientists in the late 20th century looked at about a 1,000 or so type 1a supernovae and they were trying to measure the rate at which the universe was expanding. They were so sure that what they were going to find was that that rate of, that rate of expansion was actually slowing down, that they actually named the title of their study measuring the deceleration of the universe. That's how sure they were that the universe was going to be decelerating, slowing down as it got bigger. So they took all their data, and not only did they not find that, they found the exact opposite, that the universe was accelerating. It was getting faster. It was going, all these galaxies were going away from us at an increasing rate of speed over time. Another big surprise. No one saw that coming. So this, this is the story of how we came to be where we are now. The universe, as we currently understand in our best theories of cosmology, is that the universe is expanding and that it is also accelerating as it does so. Well, what does this mean? In a physical, real way, what it means is that we can project where things are going to be going in the future, of course. The universe will keep getting bigger, and we can talk about this in another podcast, what the future uh, predictions of the universe might be. But, but more importantly, we can run this clock backwards. We can run the expansion of the universe backwards. And if we keep going and keep going, based on the current measurements that we have, we can go all the way back to the beginning, which is measured currently at about 13.7 billion years ago. 
the universe was, you know, if the universe is its current size now, which is about 95 billion light years across, then we run the clock back and we get smaller and smaller universes, hotter and hotter universes, everything's closer together, all the galaxies, everything else, until we get all the way back to the beginning of time where basically we have a beginning, a big bang. And right now, the best theories of how the universe was created was in this thing called the Big Bang. And this is where general relativity leaves us. Okay, it leaves us right here. It Because singularities, whether they be black holes or whether they be the beginning of the universe singularity, are really problematic for general relativity to, to describe. We can't deal with infinities very well. So that's how we know where we are. That's the current state of our knowledge of the of the universal expansion rate. So you might ask, well, what does this have to do with cause and effect? Well, with everything in science that we observe, everything, we notice that every effect that we observe, every observation that we ma make has somewhere in it a describable cause. And at, at no point have we found an effect that didn't have a cause. At least I don't think so, have we? Nope. <laughs> so, so causes and effects are an integral part of science. But we get to this singularity, this, this, this beginning of the universe, where we run the clock backwards, and we reach a point where one is forced to ask, well, what, you know, we, we know what caused the, uh, the galaxies. We know what causes the stars. We know what causes, you know, the expansion rate of the universe. We know all of these things. But the one thing we can't answer is what caused the Big Bang. And so that's what we're going to talk about here today. I wanted to set that stage with a little bit of history of where we are scientifically. Now, philosophically, this is not a new question, is it? No. I mean, <laughs> I, I was, I, and I should just say, I was surprised to learn that. Well, yeah. When I was a kid, I remember thinking to myself, sometimes just laying in my bed. So, you know, let's rewind the universe and go back and what caused that and what caused that. It's kind of a bit like the why question that you used to ask your parents and annoy them with, but why, but why? You get this infinite regret, right, yeah. why, why? And it's, you're never satisfied with what you get at the end of it because normally it's just, just because. Because um, <laughs> I said so. <laughs> but having a philosophical mind, you know, means that you're never going to be satisfied with that answer. And it, it is interesting to work out and understand that you're not the first person to wonder about this. In fact, actually, this is a really important area of philosophy and cosmology. It's kind of where, it's where you and I collide at a kind of as well, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So there's the cosmological argument in philosophy isn't really an argument. There are many cosmological arguments and it would take probably all day to discuss every single one. But that, that's an argument for the the, the existence of the yes, universe. Yes, a cosmological argument is the argument that says that since this is very this is very broad, but that um, since the universe exists, it must have had a beginning. Since the universe had a beginning, then there must be something that created the entire universe that includes all of space and all of time that was itself not part of the universe, and that we are going to call. God, or the unmoved mover, or the uncaused cause, or whatever. Um, but it's been used as an argument for the existence of God. Not necessarily a proof, but a way of making belief in a creator God rational. As we understand cause and effect now, every every effect that we have, the cause of it is outside of the effect. Is that right? Something else right. exerted an influence on a 
thing that yeah. made an effect. Well, so let's go back to the ancient Greeks um, at around about 330. Um, Aristotle was probably one of the first real scientists that we ever had. And his idea was that if you want to know what something is, the nature of something, then you get down on your hands and knees and you investigate that thing. And he determined that everything that is in the universe basically has four fundamental causes. Um, I won't go into all of them, but the two that are really important for this discussion are the idea that um, everything has an efficient cause. So the efficient cause is the thing that brings that thing from being potentially something to actually something. So he gives the example of a block of marble. As it is just a block of marble, it has actuality in what it is right now, but it also has almost kind of hidden within it this potentiality to become a marvelous piece of artwork, a beautiful statue. And he saw that within everything. So, um, for example, the, the universe that we live in, the whole thing, is actually and currently a universe. But at some point, it must have been a potential universe. It must have been brought into existence by something outside of itself, an efficient cause. Um, so the efficient cause of the block of marble becoming a beautiful statue is the sculptor. Um, what is the efficient cause of the universe? So that is... Um, one of the ways in which Aristotle investigated what things were. The other thing that he said about everything is that one of the other causes, because we have to really define what we mean by a cause, is that things have a final cause or a purpose, that to which they are all moving. And he saw the entire universe as being in this perpetual motion of movement, eternal movement towards something, um, towards fulfilling its nature, becoming everything that it can become. Um, so if you take his argument, he called the, he had actually a few versions of the argument, but the unmoved mover um, argument basically says that everything in the universe has, um, you know, is becoming something else. In order to become something else, it has an, needs an efficient cause. The whole universe must have, must be becoming or must have an efficient cause in order to exist. And that must be an uncaused cause. You can't, Parmenides said you can't have, something that comes from nothing and i think that's the basic premise nothing comes from nothing right and we'd say that in modern science too right. it's you know the conservation of uh, second law of thermodynamics you just nothing you don't uh, create or destroy oh. energy it's it's all there already it's it's conserved right now so an, an important caveat that he makes is that for something to be an efficient cause i.e to bring something else into existence it must itself be in an actual state of existence so a potential sculptor can't bring a block of marble into existence as a piece of artwork it has it been actual sculptor right that's kind of obvious um, but later on when aquinas takes this argument in the 13th century and makes it into um, a christian argument for the existence of god he starts with this idea that nothing can be the efficient cause of itself and because it would already have to be actual Right. Does that make sense? It would already have to be actualized. In other words, it would have to pre-exist itself to bring itself into existence. So, so to, right. the the an actual cause is. I'm sorry. But what he's trying to deny is a chain of efficient causes going on to infinity. Because if you do what you said, you go backwards and backwards, or what I tried to imagine mm -hmm. when I was a child, it's impossible. If you're just going to have, you know. At the beginning of it, nothing, another cause, a cause, and then another cause, and then another cause, and then another cause. At some point, this has to stop. Yes. At you, some point, yes. unless you've got an infinite, an infinite regression, what would what would Thomas Aquinas have said about that? Well, you need a first efficient cause. You can't, well, you can't have an infinite, like, an infinite regression of causes, can you? No. 
Because if you take away the cause, you take away the effect. So if you say there was no first cause, then there was no first effect or second effect or third effect or existent universe right now. Right. Okay. Yeah, I like the example you used when we were talking about an infinite library where you can't you can't have an infinite library and then have the phrase go to the third book on the fifth shelf have any meaning because there is right. no you know there is no beginning there is no third you know there is no place at which there is a a, a first book or a second or a third right. there there's just an infinite number of books on a bookshelf so what aquinas is going to say and I agree with aristotle is that there must have been a first cause a primary cause that was actual not potential that must have been a being that um, was not caused by anything else okay now that first cause is borne out by science the big bang so there is there is an event i should say and there is a beginning i mean let me not call it a first cause there is a beginning that's borne out by science our best theory says as i just told pointed out that the universe had a discrete beginning Right. Well, I want to come to that in a moment um, because, you know, I think that there are some scientists who would say, well, yes, but we don't know if that was the true beginning of the entire universe. That could have been part of a cycle of expansion and contraction. There could have been there could be many other big bangs that happened before that. Of course. But for our for all practical purposes, and let's just get to to this one, <laughs> this this cycle of the current universe, you know, that's what we current. That's what our observations currently tell us. Right. Okay. Then. So, um, this first cause, then, um, what would that be like? Well, if we go back to Aristotle, Aristotle has this interesting idea that the the universe. I mean, he was wrong about his you know his description of the universe, but he imagined the first cause being purely actual with no potential whatsoever. And then so you would think, well, how can that be an efficient cause of a universe if that has no potential? Because, you know, somebody who is going to design something, like go back to the statue example, has the potential in them to be a designer, to create this statue. And when they do it, then they've actualized something. But what Aristotle is saying is that nothing can act on God on the first mover, nothing can, because that thing would then be an efficient cause of God or the first mover, whatever you want to call it. Um, so we we end we have to end the chain with something that is purely actualized, that contains within itself its own reason for existence, its own beginning. And you might say, well, how can that do anything then? And Aristotle said, well, it, the unmoved mover, because he was the unmoved mover, didn't do anything. The unmoved mover just thinks about being the unmoved mover all day. But here's how he creates the universe, not as an efficient cause, but as a final cause. And remember I said that, that Aristotle said that everything had also within it a final cause or a purpose. What a it purpose is, yes, for being, A yeah. purpose. Now, this is another version of the cosmological argument that I think is way more interesting philosophically in the sense that not only, you know, might you have be thinking about, well, what caused the universe? But there's this bigger question of, well, why should there be something rather than nothing, <laughs> Yeah, right? we're not going to get into that today. We're not going to get into That's that today. That's another podcast. But the unmoved <laughs> mover is the answer to that question. And it's important for the history of Christian theology to understand that the idea that God, just by being God, being completely perfect, completely fulfilled with no potential is so damn attractive that he causes everything to happen in the universe. Kind of like an inspiration, if you like, that everything is trying to become the best that it can be. And the final example of being purely fulfilled is this, is this unmoved mover. 
and it's important for Christian theology because it means that or it be- became in Aquinas's understanding the notion that this unmoved mover did not just flick a button and you know like a chain of dominoes one fell after the other and you know might even be dead now you know isn't really that important doesn't really matter anymore but it's actually a sustaining force for the entire universe and all the motion that we see in the universe right now because it is an explanation of why so why are things doing what they're doing in other words if the unmoved mover disappeared somehow there would be nothing happening right now here in the universe so according to aristotle the purpose of the universe is fulfilled by just the mere existence of this unmoved mover because he exists and because it is so amazing the purpose for all of this reason and 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 drive is contained within the unmoved mover because because he's just so perfect yes um so that's that you know that is what it means to be a non-contingent being as well which is another version of the argument that we'll probably not get a chance to discuss in this um, podcast but the idea of a non-contingent being is that you know everything in the universe is contingent it depends on something else not just for its existence but for the um, and that's the natural world right, right. in the natural world um but the it, it might it might not exist. That's what, right. Yeah, that's what contingent. So it's right. possibly con- so. If you think about, for example, Tony here, you know, Tony exists today contingently. He he is contingent on the air that he breathes. He's contingent on the food that he eats. Contingent on the existence of his incredibly wonderful wife. Um, <laughs> but also his his true. existence is was contingent on his mommy and daddy having special cuddles, and their existence was contingent on their parents having special cuddles, and so on and so on. So it goes back but there must be something at the beginning of this whole chain of contingency that itself did not depend on any other action or any other being or any other event in the universe and the reason why we say that's god is because we're identifying god with non-contingency or necessary being it cannot be thought of not to exist in other words does not depend on anything else yeah, this took me a long time to, to get my brain around. A necessary existence is one that has embedded within it, it the reason for its own existence. There is no cause to this necessary necessary existence. Can you give us any kind of an example of this that we might be able to put our brains around? I mean... No, because cause this unmoved mover is the only... It's, you know, it's only- like... You know, like I often used to get asked by students, well, if God caused the universe, then what caused God? Right. And, you know, that isn't a good question because that's to misunderstand what we mean by the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause or God, whatever you want to call it. Because we're saying that that existence is a completely different kind of existence to everything we know. So when you ask me for an example, I can't give you any other example because nothing else. There is only one example of of non-contingent existence, and that is... And that is whatever it is that created, that existed without needing its own cause. Aquinas called um, ipsum esse subsistence, like, you know, contains within itself its own essence, its own, what what it is, its own existence. Did Aquinas have anything to say about whether this being would actually exist or not? Or this, yeah, I'll say being, I guess being. Yeah, um... I mean, if you think about it in the Bible, um, when Moses meets God in the burning bush and he asks God a really important question, who shall I say that you are? And God says, I am that I am. I am existence itself. That's who I am. 
So um, I think, what was your question again? Well, uh, did Aquinas have anything to say about whether this being could actually exist? Right, yes. In his reasoning. Yes. So he gives, so Aquinas thought that, you know, unless you could examine things empirically, he was an empiricist, um, which is why I like being a Catholic. Because you know you can, yeah, and I respect that right. about him myself. Um, so he said that you can, using your natural reason, using what you can see in the universe and what you can figure out with this gift of a brain that God is giving you, you can reason your way to knowing that God exists. In fact, God has given you this faculty so that you can sit and lie in bed and think, well, why, 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 and arrive at the idea of God's existence as being maybe not logically necessary. But definitely, you know, fitting with your understanding of everything else in the universe. However, Aquinas was careful to say that that's about as far as you can go with your own reasoning. Um, where reason ends, then faith has to take over. And what we know about God, what Christians believe about God, at least, you know, the whole of salvation history um, is all revealed to us freely by God's own choice. So the reason part of this then becomes because we exist and we are here able to ask these questions that we're asking about our universe that we live in. And we're, we have the tools to pick together observations and empirical data and, and observe our and make theories and understanding about nature and the natural world because we have this and this ability to keep asking about causes and looking for other causes, then there must be a stop to the infinite regression of cause and effect. Otherwise, none of these other things could right. happen. We could not have the series of cause and effects that we currently observe in science without there having been a first cause. Right. And then he goes on to say, well, a first cause is a thing with that is embedded within it, its own reason for existing. Yes. And then he says, that's about as far as you can go. Yeah. At this point, you really have reason can't get you any further. Reason stops at well the the fact that the observe the observable universe is the way it is. The fact that we are here questioning it and all the things are the way they are. There must be a cause, a necessary existence somewhere, and in some form. Full stop with the reason. Now, what could that necessary first necessary existence be? And this is where faith starts to take over, yes, right? Yeah. Okay, I think I get that. And I think, you know, um, it's to me where you, you and I had this discussion really early on when we met each other. <laughs> it was pretty um, intense. It was pretty intense because <laughs> I was trying to make the point that to arrive in science at a position where you're going to say something has no reason or no cause or no explanation is actually pretty unscientific. There's, you know, there's, it's That's not true. accepted in science just to say, well, we'll we, never know. Not just, well, maybe that we'll, we'll never know, I don't know, but that there is no cause. Right. So you observe something in science and you try to determine, you try to repeat the experiment or you try to determine what the causal factors might be. But at no point are you ever allowed to say, well, there is no cause whatsoever to this. This is just entirely, I mean, what would that be anyway? What would that be like? But um, And you, I think at the beginning were reluctant, I think, to agree with me that it's a sensible question to therefore ask well, what caused the entire universe? Um, and and you were of the position, I think, back then, and you can tell me how you've changed, you were of the position of, well, we don't know, and there is no cause. Maybe there is no cause. Right, and that universe. was where I left that, that video I made, right. what, what caused the Big Bang. And this is where I wish I had known 
what I know now about the philosophy behind these these uh, necessary existences and uncaused causes. Uh, so yes, I I do think and that that is first of all very unpalatable to science to say, well, we're just we, there just isn't a cause. Of course, there must be, and I don't think science has a whole lot to say about necessary existence either. No. But getting to your point of you mentioned earlier very briefly about oscillating universes and and other dimensions well the mathematics of science have gotten to this point where now we have descriptions of multiverses and cosmic landscapes and and quantum mechanical many worlds ideas as well as a uh, oscillating universe where a big bang might have the current big bang that we're in might be a sequence of an infinite number of big bangs but to me that that one still begs the well at some right. point this has to start yes. right this this oscillating you know series of big bangs probably isn't at some point it, there had to be a first big bang so it doesn't really help us much to talk about oscillating universes but it does help us to talk about you know the mathematics behind string theory that can that can at least mathematically describe where this big bang could have come from that doesn't require a necessary existence my understanding of string theory and what little I know about quantum mechanics is that these these things are not dependent on a necessary uncaused cause. So, so I, I believe it, correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, at a quantum level, events can happen without a cause, apparently. But Yes. But that... They're highly unlikely, but they can happen. There's a probability of all things happening. And very unlikely things can happen. Um, and one of which is a universe that happens to be habitable and and uh, conducive to life as we know it. And many physicists, in fact, I think I would go so far as to say almost all, believe that the universe we're living in is a rather improbable place to be. Um, so an improbable event did in fact occur. Now, whether that's... And, and even an uncaused cause, I suppose, but is they, an impossible. But, those, but even those events occur within space-time, right? But where, right. what we're talking about is the beginning of the entirety of space-time. That's correct. Which I think is different and, you know, still needs an answer. Exactly. I think that what quantum mechanics and string... Well, what quantum mechanics has to say definitely starts after the Big Bang. But as far as these other things, string theory um, and the cosmic landscape, we are just one of a much larger landscape of universes out there where our little bubble is just a part. But that um, still, that just conflates the problem and it doesn't really address. Well, of course, that's yeah. right. Yes. And it, so we got to ask, well, what about this landscape then? You know? <laughs> so, okay. So let's take it back a little while because I don't want to give the impression that this um, cosmological kind of philosophy is a Christian or even began as a Christian ideal, because actually in the 12th century, um, a Muslim scholar called Al-Ghazali, um, and also some Jewish scholars too, I believe, came up with an argument very similar, which they called the Kalam argument. Very similar and to Aquinas? Um, yes. Okay. Um, actually, I think um, Al-Ghazali wrote a book called The Incoherence of Philosophers, because he was writing at a time when he was just fed up with the Greek way of, uh, <laughs> of describing the universe. Amen, brother. I can relate um, to that. <laughs> and he said, you know, the Kalam argument was kind of forgotten about until, well, almost recently, especially, you know, just 
in the time of the Enlightenment, it wasn't really given the attention that I think it deserves. And it's a, I think, a particularly empowering argument. And William Lane Craig, who's a modern theologian, um, kind of reinvigorated this argument that has become, I think, a lot more um, intellectually satisfactory for philosophers and theologians today. And it goes a bit like this. So if the un- so let, let, I'll do this in a philosophical way because we like to have premise, premise, and conclusion. So I'll do it like that. Premise one. <laughs> okay. So the idea is that with premise, premise, conclusion, if you accept the premises of the argument, then you have to accept the conclusion. Okay. So if you want to argue with me, you got to take apart my premises, right? Okay. Okay. Premise one. If the universe began to exist, then it had a beginning. Don't argue with me yet. Okay. Wait, that's premise one. If the universe began to exist, then it had a beginning. Okay, right? Premise Mm -hmm. two. The universe began to exist. And then the conclusion, if you accept those two, is therefore the universe had a cause for its beginning. So I'll do that again. If the universe began to exist, then it had a cause for its beginning. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause for its beginning. Now, Tony and I last night sat and instead of watching TV, discussed the concept of infinity <laughs> for, I would say, maybe three and a half hours. Yeah, it was, I, my, my, I, my mind was very tired afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but what we were really getting, trying to get to was the groundwork for this argument. Because the first premise is, if the universe began to exist, then it had a cause for beginning. So to try to deny that really means that you're going to say something came from nothing. If you're saying the universe did not begin to exist, or you, or you, so we'll leave that for the second premise. If you're going to say the universe did not have a cause for its beginning, then you're saying it came out of nothing, that something came from nothing, which is, I think, illogical. Um, but also, if, if things can come out of nothing, then why are they not coming out of nothing now? Why, why as we're sitting here on a very comfortable, full-size bed, why is there not suddenly a brand new dog sitting on the end of the bed that we've That's never right. Seen it would before? be incorporated in our in our laws right. of, of being. Okay. Right? So come so do you think we can accept that first premise? Mm-hmm. Right. If the universe began to exist, then it had a cause. Okay, we will accept that. We're not saying that it did, we're just saying if it did. Okay. Mm-hmm. The second part of the argument is now going to say, well, the universe did begin to exist. Now. If you want to argue with that premise, then you're going to have to say that the universe is actually infinite. And this is where we had our big discussion <laughs> That's last right. night about the difference between actual infinity and potential infinity. Do you want to explain what those the difference are? Actually, no, I just want to no, I want to I want to speak to what science has to say about this. Okay, go on. And based on everything we know about science in the, in the history of the universe, like I said at the top of this podcast, we there was in the beginning there was a t equals 0. <laughs> A time equals zero uh, in the universe. This is the best theory that science has right now. So the beginning, I'm I that 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 I have to support. Right, but it but would you support the idea that it's logically incoherent to construct a universe which is actually infinite? And by that yes. we mean that it is a closed set, um, which is completely full. A potential infinity. Callum argument doesn't have a problem with potential infinity. Potential infinity just means that you can continue to add events to space-time, which we're doing, obviously, with no particular you know, definite endpoint in sight. We could just go on and on and on. But it will have an endpoint at some time. So, okay, you're right. We should probably define that term. Right, okay. So a potential infinity is – well, now let me start with the other one. What was the other one called? Actual infinity. Actual infinity. An example of an actual infinity would be a number line. Like right. the between the numbers of 1 and 2, 
there is a ba- there's a bound there's a boundary of one and a boundary of two and in between one and two are an infinite number of right. numbers. Yeah. That is a actual infinity. Yes. Okay. Uh, but a potential infinity would be open ended. It would be the number line itself that you can just that would that would maybe start at zero, but you goes all the way. No matter how far you go down the number line, you could always add one to it. Right. That's a potential infinity because okay. you can potentially just keep going on and on and on forever. Potential infinities are a problem. Infinite, infi- I mean, uh, no, actual I- infinities are a problem in existence. Well, no, because we've got the zero and one, all the number, the one and two, all the numbers in between there. That's 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 actually exists. That's an actual well, it, infinity. No, it doesn't actually exist in the empirical world. It, so it's a convention that mathematicians use, and it works in set theory to say there are different sizes of infinity. But in the actual world, all we have are potential infinities. We don't have any examples of actual infinities in the in the universe. Okay, I'm and still, cal- as you can see, I'm still struggling <laughs> with this. Okay, and, okay. So here's here's the example um, that Hilbert gives. You know the hotel example, mm-hmm. right. and Hilbert says. Well, it might it might work very nicely in math, and it's very important in science to have a good grasp of actual infinities and to use them for calculations and indeed for calculus itself. In the real world, in the actual world in which we exist, it does not make sense to talk about anything being actually being actually infinite. And he gives the example of an actually infinite hotel. Um, the hotel is full because it's a full set. It's actually infinite. Um, but if you were to, you know, if you were to go to the hotel and ask for a room, they'd say, "Sorry, we have no rooms, but we can still fit you in." Right. We'll just add another room. Well, because what we'll do is we'll move the person who's in room one currently to room two, and they can, that person can move to room three, and that person can move. And there you go. So the absurdity that Hilbert is is demonstrating is that you know, if in the real world you could have an actually infinite hotel, it would be both full and have a vacancy at the same time. In fact, you could have an infinite number of vacancies. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that it doesn't make sense. To say that the universe is like that would be illogical. And the ancient Greek philosophers had this very clear concept that actual infinity is just basically another word for chaos. They had mm-hmm. a negative view of actual infinity because the way they saw it was that it's just this place where everything breaks down. There's no there's no sense, there's no logic, nothing can happen in an actual infinity. You can't have an actually infinite library as you said because you wouldn't be able to go and get something from the third row because there wouldn't be a first row for which you could measure where the yeah it is a form of chaos and einstein and others had a similar problem with infinities and singularities they they found them extremely problematic and because they you simply cannot predict what will happen in in an infinity or what would cause one so he didn't like them either in fact science doesn't really like them very much either so okay So, so so let's just recap um Part one of the Callum argument, the first premise was if the universe began to exist, then it had a cause of its beginning. So we agreed that it would have a cause if it existed. Part right. two, we've just said that the universe began to exist. Because right. otherwise it would be an actual infinite. We don't mind potential infinities. They can have a start point, but have an infinite number of points going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's okay, but it just can't be actually infinite, right? right? So if you agree with those two, then this is the beauty of the Callum argument. Then you are forced to agree with the conclusion, which says, therefore, the universe has a cause of its beginning. Right. The whole universe. Actual, you know, actual, put it another way, you know. Firstly, you could say actually, actual infinity can't exist. Secondly, an infinite temporal regressive events 
is another way of describing an actual infinity. If you're going to say that the, this universe was caused by a previous Big Bang, which was caused by a Big Bang before that, which was caused by a Big Bang before that, and it just goes on ad infinitum, then what you're talking about is an actual infinity. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it can't exist. There wouldn't be a universe now. All right. And I would argue that while we're not done with it here in this universe, there, there, the fate of the universe, again, and this will be a topic of another podcast, but the fate of our universe uh, is progr- it can either be uh, that it will collapse in on itself from the, gra- the pull of gravity of all the things in it. But based on this, what, this universal acceleration I was just talking about, it now seems as if the universe will just expand forever until uh, the, everything gets so far apart that the universe essentially dies a heat death. And while we're, all the stars burn out and, and die, all of the uh, black holes will evaporate. You know, everything, trillions and trillions of years of now, the, the universe will continue, space and time will continue to expand, but the things within it will be, will be dead. And I think that you could say that when the very last black hole evaporates, you've had an end. You've got an end. So within the seemingly actual infinity there's actually an end here so does that make sense yeah so you're saying it doesn't even need to be potentially infinite right i'm saying the universe is not potentially infinite it's actually infinite and that you know that's a good point that you make because it comes back down to this idea of everything within the universe being contingent and being dependent for its existence on something else right and if that's true, then it makes sense to say that, you know, the whole universe could is contingent and the whole universe itself could not exist. Yes. And then, in fact, that's the whole point of this argument, isn't that's it? Right. That it need not have existed. That's right. That's right. The universe need not be here. And that's that's the whole definition but what of contingency. Need, but what does need to have always existed is this first cause outside of the universe, outside of this chain of That's exactly right. Things. Whatever it is that brought us here had to be outside of it to make it happen. And it had to have within itself the reason for its own existence. So the initiation of the first cause was outside of our current universe. So you're sense? actually, Tony, agreeing with me that there is an uncaused cause, that there is a prime mover. I think so. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't know how to get out of it, to be honest. If I'm, if I'm going to be just scientific about it, I would, right. I would have stopped long ago because I would have said, you know, I don't have anything to say about that. But uh, we have gone outside the realm of science here to try and answer these questions. And I think that's an important thing to do. I think it's important to understand where science limits lie. And we need to be careful as science communicators and also as scientists, how, what language we use and how, if we, if we go out and we start talking about these other dimensions or these other worlds and other landscapes that could exist beyond that may actually very well exist, but we have, but science has no way of verifying it or talking about it. Then what are we talking about here? Are we really using, is this really science? And while we could get into a discussion of what science is, the general consensus is that whatever science is, nobody really knows. People like Popper and, and all kinds of people throughout history have tried to define and give us an idea of what science is. But the basic consensus is no one really knows what science is, but when we, well, we will know it when we see it. And 
to me, that seems very subjective. And so for me to know science when I see it, it needs to be backed up with data and observation. And these ideas of cosmic landscapes and of, of um, you know, many world quantum theories and all of this stuff is not science by that definition. I think that it's a, I think it's a um, mathematical description and you can, we could get into whether or not the math, just because it's mathematically coherent, that it's actually real. But I don't think so. I, that, that's not enough for me because math can often describe all kinds of non-real things. So I think we need to be careful about where the limits of science, the domain of science is. And, and right now it's in the domain of observation and uh, verification. That's kind of like where where a theologian ought to arrive as well at this point, because, you know, we have to be careful doing theology and philosophy about what we claim from these arguments. OK, so, for example, you know, you said that, you know, there's a point at which you would probably have to say, well, I can't say anything else as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and Aquinas, if I'm being honest. Yeah. And Aquinas would say the same thing. He would say, you know, I can I can provide these ways or these demonstrations of the likelihood of God's existence that make what I'm saying rational and make it, you know, make it logical to believe in God. But I cannot prove that God exists um, and I cannot say anything about God, what God is like, because I do not have an infinite language. And, you know, if God is the actual infinite here, then how can I possibly say anything um, or know anything about God except that which God chooses to reveal to us? Right, which brings us, I think, to what I want to do really soon, maybe not the next podcast, but maybe we will. We'll talk about this idea of the war, the so-called war between science and religion, which um, I don't think either of us think exists. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to to know where the limits of what we're talking about lie. Yeah. And I love that about Aquinas. I love the, the fact that, you know, you say, look, we can go back with reason and, and intellect and, and and get to a point where we could say, well, because all of these things are true, because I am here and because there must there must be a cause there must be a, a first cause somewhere. And then stop, just stop and say, that's about as far as you're going to reason because it's really true. It's certainly true with science. And, you know, you need something else. And what I cannot do, which you've done, is I cannot make that leap. I cannot go that extra step and say, well, then whatever that necessary being is, whatever that uncaused cause is, whatever that, what was it, unmoved mover? Yes. Whatever that unmoved mover was, it's gone. I can't. I can't go there uh, because I, I just I don't I just can't. Um, but I don't have anything to put there either. So it's an empty spot for me. Uh, I don't know what to do about it. But, yeah, I, it, I'm, I'm stuck. And I think any any honest scientist would be as well. And if they're being honest with themselves, you know, they'd have to say, well, science has to stop here until we get something better than relativity that can describe, you know, these black holes we're seeing or these singularities that are all over the universe. Well, could you just say something before we end about our discussion about singularities? Because, like, for example, a black hole has an infinite mass, you said. Last no, night. it has a finite, oh, it, has a, it has a finite mass because it, black holes are born when very massive stars greater than about 30 right. solar masses okay. die. And when they die... Uh, they they have a supernova explosion, but then the core collapses 
at such a fast rate that nothing can stop the collapse. And that mass, which is a finite amount, 30 or so solar masses, goes down into a point that has infinite density and zero volume. So infinitesimally small volume and an infinite density. Now, that is that is a singularity. And these are a problem in science because they cannot be... Um, they cannot be properly dealt with with the mathematics of general relativity, and they can't be what goes on inside of an infinity can't be properly predicted by by any theory whatsoever. So they're a problem. And in fact, Einstein and others like disliked these infinities so much that he goes, "If your theory has an has an infinity right. in it, then it's doomed to fail. It's doomed." He said that about his own theory, which you know, of course, has singularities in it. So you've got to get rid of these singularities if you want to have a proper scientific description of the universe. And I think you were telling me, and maybe this is true, that sing that string theory uh, with the fact that instead of things being discrete atoms and, and, and molecules and all of this stuff, if you keep going down to these super tiny strings that have loops in them, then you can the mathematics works out such that you can get rid of the singularities, but that to me is based on magic because these <laughs> these these this a mathematical magic because these things whether if they exist physically in some form are forever separated from us in every bit and in every sense just as if a black hole singularity is 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 separated from us. So I don't see how that helps. I don't see how by you get rid of a singularity with a mathematical theory that's equally inaccessible. So I don't see how that helps us any, how we've gotten anywhere <laughs> with do this. Do you see that there is any, well, obviously there's a difference, but do you see that, you know, there is a, that it's more logically acceptable or more scientific to believe in an infinite amount of density than it is to believe in an infinite first cause an infinite first cause because you're talking about how science at the moment depends on this concept of actual infinities existing in black holes and infinitely small matter and we're not using that word as um, a kind of like metaphor we're actually saying actually infinite mm -hmm. do you think that that there's you know why is it I guess I guess I'm asking why is it easier for scientists to believe in that than it is to believe that? Well, it's it's not to believe in. It's actually but there. But black holes, we've we have physically seen uh, with our telescopes, so they actually exist. These singularities actually exist. What well, what is falling? What them. is falling? We haven't. We've observed. Well, okay, the we've. Of them. You're right. You keep we pointing that out. Right. Well, we have. We have inferred their we existence, inferred the existence so by looking at the effects that it has okay. on things we can see. Well, let me just stop you there then, because what theologians are doing is inferring the existence of an infinite creator from the effects in the universe. It is an inference argument. It's not a logically necessary argument. I get that. Yeah, and right. I and I and that's why I'm I'm kind of with you on this. I I can't really support what science is saying other than to say it is a problem these singularities most scientists won't talk about it or even even really acknowledge it but singularities black holes are a big deal they're a big problem and in, in science right now and why they exist and what they really are is is i mean stephen hawking developed his whole career around these things and you know they're 
they're problematic. So we need a better theory, I think, to help us with uh, our understanding of what the nature of these infinities that exist out of Einstein's general theory of relativity. So we're not there yet, and science isn't done. But I don't know if it'll ever be at the point where we could talk, it will be able to prove necessary existence or even observe it. There's going to be a point where we might be able to get rid of the singularities of black holes, or at least understand them as not being singularities, but something else equally strange. Maybe they're not points of infinite density. Maybe there's something else that, that to us look like this, but we just don't know for sure because relativity won't let us in. It won't let us get in there <coughs> because of the whole right. speed of light thing. So, <clears throat> so anyway, um, so what about, so, I mean, I think, I don't want to say anything else about, <coughs> about the cosmological argument in this podcast, but I do think there's more to explore, in particular the argument from sufficient reason, which says that there must be, rather than looking at efficient causes, this argument looks at final causes or explanations for why things are are a particular way, why they exist, and the explanation of the entire universe must be God. Everything needs an explanation, and that was an argument that Leibniz put forward. So I hope that maybe next podcast we could spend some time looking at a really big question, which is something that I've asked myself, I think, systematically at least once a week for my entire existence, which is, (laughs) I know. And I keep asking this to people, and I never get an answer that satisfies me. Why is there something and not nothing? Because even if you believe in God, why did God create something and not just leave it as nothing no. right okay that uh, you want to do that next time huh? i do yeah all right we'll go into that next time <laughs> and what is nothing anyway that's that would be a good discussion yeah what is nothing we're so we're i'm reading a chapter on that right now in a book so it's it's uh not as trivial a question as you'd think and it's not as easy to answer what is nothing i mean you can you can imagine it but maybe you can imagine it a certain kind of it but really if you think about it defining nothing is actually quite hard so, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and stop here, folks. And I hope you guys are liking these. And we'll post another one coming up. We'll actually talk about nothing. We'll talk about nothing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> It'll be a podcast about nothing. So okay. we'll do that next time. That should be popular. All right. Talk to you guys <laughs> later. And let us know what you think. So, bye-bye. Bye-bye.